everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. We are live. Really excited to have on two guests um, who are making their Katie Helper Show debut. We are, of course, talking more and more, and we're not going to stop talking about this because it's a really big, important story, and it's something that we want to be bringing as much more attention and to more, as and we're not possible. Stop talking about that. Uh, and that was a metaphor. I don't know if you guys could hear that, but I just could hear myself on double, which was a metaphor for how we're talking about it more and more. We're going to be joined in the second half of the show by Nora Erekat. And right now we are blessed to be joined by Yumna Patel, who is live in, as we speak, in Bethlehem. She's covering Palestine for the amazing website, uh, Mondo Weiss, which if people don't know that site, I really recommend it. It covers the Middle East. And thank you so much for joining us, Yumna. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, and also a reminder that after this, I will be joining a Kshama Sawant stream. People probably know that I've had Kshama on the show She's city councilwoman, and they're running a right wing, basically recall against her. So we're going to try to help her out on that. So stay to the end of this. It's going to be historically short by my standards. And we're going to jump over to that other stream afterwards. And then maybe we'll come back and stream some more after here. So we'll see. Anyway, of course, please uh, rate and review. If you listen to the podcast, please like this stream, subscribe, press subscribe, and then the bell. Please share. And also, if you have a shekel or two, you can just become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. All right. So let us get into this. Tell us where you are, what you're observing, why you're there in the first place. Yeah. So I mentioned that in Bethlehem, for those who don't know, Bethlehem is a city in the southern occupied West Bank. I've been here for five years now. And much of those five years have been spent reporting for Mondawise, which is an amazing organization. And we do news focused on Israel and Palestine and U.S. politics, obviously, as they're, they're relating to the region. So that's why I'm here. I've been here. You know, I initially came to Palestine reporting for a local Palestinian news agency. And I've spent the past five years reporting on everything related to Palestinian lives under Israeli military occupation in the West Bank. And so what is uh, happening now? What do you think the context that people are missing most here is? The context that is most absent that mm -hmm. you're seeing being there? Yeah, sure. The question that I get a lot, that I get asked a lot, and I've been getting asked a lot in the you know recent days is, how did we get here? I mean, I think, obviously, like you said, context is important. People are, or the media tends to look as, at these sort of moments in Palestine as individual moments that are happening. But in short, the simple answer of how we got here to the current moment that a lot of people are seeing in the media is that the simple answer is what we're seeing now is the result of more than 70 years of ethnic cleansing, dispossession, apartheid, and the violent military occupation of the Palestinian people. And that's the very simple answer of why we're here in the context of what is happening now. I think it all comes down to that and it all um, comes back to that. In terms of the most recent events and what's been happening that's led us to the current situation that we're seeing in Gaza and the West Bank, in Palestinian communities inside Israel and Jerusalem, is immediately if we go back to look at the beginning of the month of Ramadan and what was happening in Jerusalem there, 
starting from the beginning of the month, obviously, which is the holiest month for Muslims in the year, Israeli forces were, you know, severely restricting Palestinian access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, restricting access of Palestinians into and around the old city. They were stepping up unwarranted stops and searches of Palestinian youth and Palestinian people in the area, which takes place year round, but is obviously especially sensitive during Ramadan. And one of the biggest things that happened that was causing a lot of tension throughout the month and from the very beginning was when Israeli forces imposed these metal barriers around the Damascus Gate area, which is the entrance to the Muslim quarter of the old city. And for those uh, who have been to Palestine and those you know who, who are unaware, the Damascus Gate area, it was not just an entrance um, to the old city. It is a, a very important space, public space for Palestinian life and Palestinian social life and the community inside Jerusalem. It's where people spend a lot of time gathering and sitting with each other especially during the month of Ramadan. So the restriction of the access to that site was causing a lot of, of tension. And then, of course, that all came to a head, as we saw around 10 days ago, when Israeli forces stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, sparking confrontations with Palestinian worshippers, attacking Palestinian worshippers while they were praying, etc. We saw all those videos where Palestinians were saying that the Al-Aqsa compound, which is the third holiest site in Islam had been turned into a war zone. What they That's what they were saying. In tandem, at the same time, everything that was happening around Al-Aqsa and Jerusalem, we were also seeing tensions rising in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem, which is just right outside the old city. Leading up to May 2nd was the, the deadline that the Israeli district court had set for, for the forced expulsion, the forced eviction of the families there. So at the same time that things were happening at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, things were coming to a head in Sheikh Jarrah as the deadline for the forced eviction was becoming ever more imminent. So the, the Palestinians in the neighborhood and Palestinians from surrounding areas, they were holding daily sit-ins and, and peaceful protests and demonstrations in the area. And of course, those were being violently suppressed by Israeli forces at the same time. So all of that sort of came to a head and we saw that erupt in Jerusalem. As I'm sure you know, and people know, Jerusalem, it's obviously not just an important point, an important city for Muslims, obviously, because of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and what that means. But Jerusalem is definitely a red line, obviously, when it comes to Palestinians. And Jerusalem has always been a uniting sort of force for Palestinians, wherever they may be, depending on their geographical fragmentation. So that sparked, we saw protests in the West Bank started popping up inside in Gaza in Palestinian communities inside Israel. And everyone was rising up against the Israeli aggressions at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and the Palestinians at Jerusalem, and then against what was happening in, in Sheikh Jarrah. And then uh, essentially what happened then around a week ago is Hamas authorities in, in the Gaza Strip essentially gave Israel an ultimatum saying, leave, evacuate your forces from the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and from the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. And obviously that didn't happen. And that's how we came to the current situation that we're in. And since then, the protests have not stopped. They've only grown bigger. We've seen them continue to grow and to spread in Palestinian communities inside Israel, in the West Bank as well. And now Palestinians, they're not just standing up and rising up in support of Sheikh Jarrah and of Jerusalem, but also in support of Gaza and against the Israeli aggressions uh, that are currently happening in Gaza and against the 15-year the siege and blockade of, of the Gaza Strip. So it's all coming together right now. But I think 
whether it be Gaza or Sheikh Jarrah or Jerusalem or Lidda or what's happening in Haifa and Yaffa and how the Palestinian communities in those cities are being attacked. I think what's happening now, what we're seeing now is just Palestinians, primarily Palestinian youth rising up against the seven years of Israeli apartheid and colonialism and ethnic cleansing that has suffocated them and their people. So you don't have to respond to this. I can respond to it. Someone else can. But I want to say something that I think people say a lot which is, oh, but Israel doesn't target civilians while Hamas does. Do you have a response to that? And I'm I'm not agreeing with this, but I wanted to know if you wanted to, to take that one or not. I mean, I think the numbers speak for themselves, right? It's been seven days of um, constant bombardments on the Gaza Strip. Keep in mind, people know this, but it's worth a reminder that there are more than 2 million Palestinians, most of them refugees, most, more than 70% of the population in Gaza are refugees. This is one of the most densely populated areas on earth. And that obviously is a result of the 15 year blockade that has completely strangled and suffocated Gaza. So this, like I said, the past week and the numbers speak for themselves. Israel has been been bombarding one of the most densely populated places on earth where there are more than 2 million people and you have millions of civilians that have nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. There are no bomb shelters for them um, to hide in. There are no warnings. There are no sirens um, going off to let them know that they're about to be bombed. And I can look at the numbers here, but currently the last time I checked was maybe half an hour ago. It's very well that those numbers could have changed because the death toll is literally rising by the minute. But at least 198 Palestinians, including 58 children, have all been killed in the past week. That's in seven days. And that number is continuing to rise. Just last night in the middle of the night, Israel bombed a very densely populated civilian neighborhood in the middle of Gaza City, which is very close to Al-Shifa Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Gaza. There were more than 33 Palestinians killed. No, I'm sorry, last night. So last night was one of the deadliest nights so far. There were So far, there have been 42 people that were killed and more than 50 injured. Many of them were children. Again, this was a civilian neighborhood. Two of the people that were killed in last night's airstrike were two of Gaza's top doctors, including one of the only neurologists in the Gaza Strip, Dr. Muin Al-Alul and the head of the, corona, and the, head of the coronavirus response team at Gaza's biggest hospital, Al-Shifa Hospital, Dr. Ayman Al-Auf. So again, I think the numbers speak for themselves when, when Israel says we don't target civilians. More than 50 children have been killed. You have doctors being killed. We saw buildings, housing media offices being targeted. One of the things, one of the sort of remarkable things to know about what happened last night was it wasn't just that people's houses were bombed in the most densely populated civilian residential neighborhood, is that also the streets on the neighborhood were also bombed. And these are the streets that lead to Al-Shifa Hospital. So also the infrastructure that allows Palestinian first responders to respond to the people that were bombed and allowed the injured to, to be taken to the hospital, that was also targeted as well. So I think that's all people need to know when responding to questions like that. Yeah, thank you for that. And it's funny because it's really repeated like by so many people. And I have no idea, by the way, if this person is cynical and knows that's not true or if they really mm-hmm. believe that. But to be fair, I mean, it's like it's so often repeated by the media as if it's a fact and no one actually mm-hmm. looks at it. No one defines it. Like, what does it mean to target a civilian? When Israel kills people who are civilians, that it's not targeting it because what? Because a militant was killed? That's still targeting a civilian. 
if you're going mm-hmm. to a civilian, I mean, there's like so much and there's so many layers and I almost feel like, like, I don't mm-hmm. even want to go there, but we do have to, it's to some extent, but it's just like the whole thing is a distraction from the fact that Israel is an occupying power mm-hmm. violating human rights law and international law. And the irony is some people don't want to say this because they don't want to sound like Hamas fans, but Gazans have the right to defend themselves because they're occupied. Mm-hmm. Like they're the ones who have that right under international law. Right. B'Tselem, the leading Israeli human rights organization, they came out with a statement yesterday in regards to this sort of argument that you've been talking about that, you know, oh, Israel doesn't target civilians and that the the bombing of such civilian structures is justified because Israel has intelligence that it's used, whatever, by Hamas militants. Um, and B'Tselem came out, I'm just pulling it up here, saying that Israel is committing war crimes in the Gaza Strip by killing blockaded civilians and destroying infrastructure on a massive scale. And something that they noted was that IDF spokesperson, the IDF spokesperson has admitted that Israel's action in Gaza are as far from pinpoint accuracy as you can get. They're making Gaza City shake. The, the spokesperson also said that the military was attacking military targets belonging to terrorist organizations, even at the cost of harming un- uninvolved individuals from whom from whose crowded populated neighborhoods Hamas and Islamic Jihad have chosen to launch rockets. And that is the common denominator, the most common argument that we see on the part of the Israeli military is that it's Hamas's fault that we have to target these civilian neighborhoods. But then Beit Salem goes on to say that, indeed, Palestinian armed groups may have been launching rockets at civilian populations, concentrations inside Israel since Monday, including heavy barrages, etc. Yet the message conveyed in the IDF spokesperson's statement is that no matter how Israel responds or how horrific the results, its actions will be legitimate. The stance is unreasonable, unlawful, and empty and empties the fundamental norms of international humanitarian law, which Israel is obliged to uphold of meaning. The hundreds of bombs Israel is boasting of raining down on Gaza are not part of a new policy. Israel bombs the Gaza Strip from time to time at varying degrees of intensity, killing people and damaging civilian property and infrastructure. And they basically go on to say that, as you mentioned, the onus is on Israel as the occupying power to uphold international law and that international law actually does not allow for Israel to bomb civilian structures using the current arguments that they are. And they're saying that in the current circumstances, the policies that Israel is enacting and the the actions that they're undertaking are the same ones that they're currently under investigation for in the ICC for the crimes they committed in in 2014. So they're saying it's happening again. Yeah. Thank you again for doing what you're doing, because there are not a lot of people doing that. Also, it's, I imagine, a tense place to be and as people probably know, the IDF bombed an AP office building. So how does that make you feel as a journalist? So, I mean, the, the whole discourse, obviously, and the conversation surrounding the, the bombing of the, the Jalat building, which housed a, a bunch of international media offices, including AP and Al Jazeera, is interesting because obviously, first of all, this is the third media office that Israel has targeted in the airstrikes in the past week. Previously, they targeted two buildings that housed local Palestinian run organizations. And obviously those didn't get as much attention as the bombing of foreign press offices. Obviously, as a journalist, it's disturbing, but I don't think it's surprising. Palestinians, specifically Palestinian journalists, know very well that Israel does not respect international norms when it comes to the treatment of journalists and the press. Palestinian journalists are routinely injured, killed by Israeli forces in Gaza and both in the West Bank. Um, Palestinian journalists are routinely detained and arrested by Israeli forces and imprisoned, often for long periods of time, sometimes with 
no actual trial or charge as part of Israel's administration administrative detention policy. So I think, obviously, as journalists, it's upsetting, but by no means is it shocking because Israel has a long track record of targeting Palestinian journalists and targeting and not respecting international norms when it comes to press freedoms. I think that people are just more shocked or now just suddenly aware of it because they were targeting media offices. And it's worth saying, and it's something that Palestinians have also been saying, something I've been seeing a lot on social media is, yeah, obviously Israel doesn't respect press freedoms because we've seen their actions in the past towards Palestinian journalists. And what happened was a grave violation of international law and it was wrong and shouldn't have happened. But the world has seemed to be more outraged by the bombing of the press office than they have the killing of Palestinian children and people for the days before that. So, yeah, definitely. Let's see. The anti-partisan race, the Israeli intelligence indicates the air in Gaza is being breathed by Hamas. Therefore, the air is a legitimate military target under international law, IDF, basically. I mean, I think that that's, it kind of reminds me of, did I highlight this one already? Firmware, the idea for bombing residential neighborhoods in Gaza and the roads to access them to make rescue efforts more difficult. It reminds me, no one really cared about the bad guy and collateral murder. The bad guys are, and that of course is the video that Assange helped Chelsea Manning publish. There were Reuters reporters, but they were locals. So no one really cared. And with with Saudi Arabia, the thing that got people mad was that people knew Khashoggi, right? He was a journalist Mm -hmm. who... People knew he had international connections and, you know, elite connections. And that's why people were horrified. But it's yeah. fine if you're just a local person from those places. Yeah. And it's something I've actually been thinking about. I mean, now with there's still heavy COVID restrictions in place in Israel and obviously in, in Palestine as well. And the people that are really on the ground covering what's happening now, the vast majority are local Palestinian journalists. They are the ones leading the coverage of what's happening right now on the ground. They are the ones that are exposing Israel's crimes in real time to the world. It's different this time around compared to just from what I've seen on the ground at the protests that we've been to across the West Bank in 2017, for example, back when Trump recognized, you know, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, et cetera, and all the fallout that happened after that. There were protests happening every day here. And there was foreign press everywhere. I mean, I've, I think I saw one like foreign journalists in the past few days. So Palestinian journalists are really leading the coverage, I mean, as they have done for years, obviously, but especially this time around, I've really been only seeing Palestinian journalists on the ground. And that also is obviously a cause for concern because it just makes you wonder if Israel is just going to be more brazen in its use of excessive force against against the press because, well, they, frankly, they don't have to worry about killing foreign journalists and they're used to killing Palestinian journalists. Right. Yeah. It's also a weird thing when people are like, please stop killing innocent civilian journalists. Can you limit your killing to non to innocent civilian non-journalists? Yeah, it's something. And I mean, I think that's just a result of the discourse around Palestine is Palestinians are constantly forced to like prove their humanity to the world and prove that they just deserve to live and that they deserve to exist, which is why, unfortunately, you know, people fall into And it's not by anyone's fault except for the international community and the media that perpetuates these narratives. But, you know, when we see these reports, it's like, of course, people are going to focus on the attacks on journalists or the attacks on foreign press offices, because that's unfortunately, that's what gets people's attention, not the killing of, of Palestinian civilians. And even today, 15 people in last night's airstrike on the 15 people of the same family were killed. The entire families are being wiped out. And I was just thinking, you know, they saw the list of the names and the ages. And there were a number of children 
but you know, okay, technically 18 and under is children, right? But there was also a 19 year old and a 22 year old and a 23 year old. It's like these, you can't even, at some point, it's like, I don't even want to be the one saying, oh, X amount of people were killed and of them children, because it's like, this is just so heinous all around. It doesn't matter the ages of the people that obviously the killing of children is horrendous, but you know, and the killing of foreign journalists and attacking of foreign press offices is horrendous as well. But overall, these are just heinous crimes that are being, you know, perpetuated against the Palestinian people and against people in Gaza, and, and none of them deserve this. Right. No, that's very true. And I think that part of it is also because, as you said, there's such a dehumanization and such an attempt to just pathologize all Palestinians as the same and mm-hmm. all like suicidal and terror. I mean, there's so much in built into that. So while I also I totally understand what you're saying. And I also think that like sadly it is part of I mean we would do that in any in any country, but I totally hear what mm-hmm. you're saying. The takeaway should not be like, but for them being children, mm-hmm. it'll be okay. And yeah. and it is it's like this double double labor that has to be done because the, mm-hmm. there's so much PR saying that Palestinians are one thing and want to push Jews into the sea, whatever, implant your, the, the, like, the not true thing that is said. But anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know how late it is where you are. Yeah. Please come back on. Thank you for your work. I'll, I'll link to more videos and. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. So guys, thanks so much for watching the show. And we are so uh, grateful to uh, Yumna and we're really grateful to our next guest, and she's just so, I'm so excited that she was able to do the show. She is a Palestinian human rights lawyer. She's an author. She's writing things all the time. I don't know where she finds the time, but she has a piece recently that was at the Washington Post that we talked about on my show last time. So just wanted to bring into the stream Nora Erekat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Katie. Of course. We've never met. So I want to thank you for all you do. Also offer you my condolences because... I'm used to seeing you on Democracy Now! to talk about politics and the personal is political, but I remember seeing you talk about your cousin who had been killed. And so... I appreciate that really so much. Thank you for all your tireless labor and for lifting this up on this platform and bringing Yumna on, who I also saw recently attacked with all the rest of the Palestinians with uh, tear gas. That was probably the most difficult interview I've ever done. Because there's a way in which, as a Palestinian, trying to speak on behalf of an entire people, that you want to maintain your composure. You want to speak to an audience and convince them of some basic facts so that they can decide for themselves. And yet in that moment, it was, I couldn't be the analyst. I was the bereaved family member of a young 27-year-old man shot dead at a checkpoint separating two Palestinian cities on the day of his sister's wedding, who was accused immediately of being a terrorist, where there was no autopsy. His body is still held in captivity, along with the bodies of 62 other Palestinians. We've since collaborated with forensic architecture. It has been demonstrated that the car was decelerating and that it must have been a mechanical error. There has been no budging on this issue. And instead, we're out here constantly having to respond 
to horrible accusations because the presumption is that he was already always guilty. You all were discussing this idea that we never talk about Palestinian men being killed, right? Because the presumption is that every Palestinian man is a militant, is a fighter. Every child is a potential fighter who will then become the militant. So there's this way that Palestinian men can't be victims in our society, and that Palestinian women can only be saved in our society. Even the rhetoric around folks wanting us to be perfect victims, they want us to lay down and die. They want us to lay down and die and not fight back. And that in one's head, it's you know this idea that we can be saved, but we can't save ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're not here to be saved. We're here looking for solidarity. So... Right. That is the history of all people's movements. Palestinians are not unique in their freedom struggle. They're not the first and not the last. It happens to be in a particular historical moment where, you know, it remains one of the last outstanding agenda items on an anti-colonial agenda. And so it's an, it's anachronistic. It's in between time and space. And so that's what makes it so unique. I think about how many times people, it's so accepted for most media and politicians in the United States to have emotional connections to Israel in a way that it's not for people to have emotional connections to Palestine. And I remember like years and years ago, Helen Thomas made a comment. She's the only person who had any kind of like sympathy towards Palestinians. She was Lebanese, right? So she probably had an insight into a lot of insight. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Palestinian geographies. I mean, one, one, the demarcation and the making of the nation state was not something that was natural, but was also placed upon us. Right. So that we often say that the border crossed us, not just as Palestinians, but as all Arabs and specifically Levantine Arabs. Number two, Lebanon has been subject to a systematic form of warfare from Israel as well. The most recent and vivid example was the 2006 war where Israel decimated, decimated the South and went up to Beirut. But, and, and obviously in 1982, the invasion of Lebanon, Lebanese people, as all Arabs are also part of the region and have been enduring the cost of making Israel a fact on the ground. Israel is an imperial imposition on the Middle East. It is an imperial imposition that was ushered through the patronage of the United Kingdom and obviously with the patronage of the French has been now upheld by the United States, but nobody consulted us. Yeah. (laughs) And so all um, Arab communities have been paying the price of this imposition and our opposition to this kind of force has been framed as anti-Semitic. And I just want to say something about this because we haven't had time to have this as a part of the conversation, but so much of the United States' commitment to equating the battle against anti-Semitism with the protection of Israel is a way to then protect itself and to avoid the discussion of anti-Semitism as an outcome and a derivative of white supremacy. The Holocaust is the manifestation of the idea of a European man to which Jewish people could not belong. Therefore, they were denied citizenship. They were considered Oriental. They were considered backward, too religious, too dirty, right? That they weren't, that the idea of emancipation was the idea of citizenship for Jewish people because they could not become unless they completely assimilated. Otherwise, they were exogenous. This entire conversation 
of anti-Semitism and its relationship to white supremacy is then obfuscated and avoided by making the conversation about Israel, where the con- now we then frame the resistance to the political project of an exclusive Jewish Zionist state, right, which is a political project, now that gets transformed into an Islamophobic narrative about the rejection of Jews, primordial hatred. Right. And what it does is it just absolves us of an honest conversation yeah, it's a good, yeah. about white supremacy. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's also such an anti-Semitic stereotype to, to conflate Jewish identity with like blind support of Israel. Right. That's the other part of it that no one really wants to talk about. It's like, no, don't put that on us. Like there's a difference between political ideology, us being Jews. But that's that's something that you, you know, the dual loyalty stuff, all of that is part of the same package of anti-Semitic. We're just not having an honest conversation. And instead, it's Palestinians and Arabs who are made to pay the price for white supremacy, who are these children. So Yumna mentioned the family of 15. Talk about emotional. That is my dear friend, Hussam al-Khulak's family. Hussam is a lawyer based in Los Angeles. He's a brilliant um, young man, incredibly funny. He likes to surf for fun, right? He wants to live his life. But today he listed the, his 15 family members. And I just want to read out the first names, at least in his honor and for his sake. I haven't heard from him today. And I just, Hussam, may we continue this fight and until victory in their memory. Amin Muhammad, Ayat Ibrahim, Muhammad Awni, Tahir Shukri, Ahmad Shukri. Fawaz Shukri, Riham Fawaz, Samih Fawaz, Abdul Hamid Fawaz, Qusay Samih, Azzat Ma'in, Zayt Azzat, Adam Azzat, Saadiya Yusuf, Amal Jamil. Those are 15 spirits and dreams. Those are 15 relationships in the world. And for some reason, I know the reason, right? Because racism and colonialism. But people don't see these names. They just expect us to die. They expect us to die in ways that they don't expect Jewish Israelis to die. When Jewish Israelis die, there's shock. There's fear. They're like us. But it's okay when we die because we're supposed to. Colonial violence. This is the outcome of colonial violence and it's the acceptance of this colonial structure. Right. That's why there's so much anxiety about Hamas rockets. Right. Nobody's angry about the violence of siege or the violence of bombardment or the violence of checkpoints or the violence of apartheid or the violence of programs against Arab, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Right. But they get really anxious about the violence of the natives. Right. And this is, this goes back to Fanon. This is like what liberals do. They they don't, they're not upset. They don't become adherents of nonviolence except when the natives become violent. Right. Right. So I just, you know, I, I want to point that out that if, 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 if that is what your main issue is, that you just don't like violence and you just want everyone to get along, you, I'm going to respect you, but I won't believe you until I see you condemning Israel's violence, calling for its demilitarization and end to its nuclear program and sanctions on Israel. Then you make sense to me. Otherwise, you just sound like you want us to die quietly. Right. Otherwise, it's not principled. It's just selective. 
adoption of something when it suits you. Yeah. I had Norman Finkelstein on the other day. And one of the things that I find amazing about him is how his parents were in the Warsaw ghetto. Both of them were in the Warsaw ghetto uprising. And then they went to Auschwitz and Madinac. And he was saying how, who is he to tell people like that they can't do whatever they can to resist? And he said, it was like really gave me goosebumps because, and he was like, Jews, we were set, told that we went to our deaths like lambs to slaughter and we're supposed to be proud of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But in this case, no, they're, they're just supposed to go to like lambs to the slaughter. And it was just, I've heard other people who are survivors make the point that the, that the takeaway from the Holocaust is, of course, to never again for anyone, not just never again for Jews. But the lesson should be that we should not be applying this to other people. People pretend that, like, if only there were a Palestinian Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King, yeah. if only there were, it's like most of the time yeah. there is not violence I, from. I from get so angry at this yeah. argument. I get so angry at this argument because we have hundreds of Gandhis. Yeah. It's not about our resistance. We have hundreds of Gandhis. Nobody wants to pay attention, right? BDS. Is yeah. by definition a nonviolent movement. And there are 41 out of 50 states that want to outlaw it because they consider it anti-Semitic. Israel and the United States, of course, I mean, none of this is possible without this imperial patron. And so you, it, it is about the United States. None of it would be, none of what they do would be possible. They have made all forms of resistance illegal. They call our legal advocacy lawfare, right? They call our militancy terrorism. They call our nonviolent movement, even the member of the Mavi Marmara to mm-hmm. b- break the, the blockade of Gaza right. with civilian ships that were onboarded by Israeli naval right. troops that shot dead 11 civilians, right? That that now is considered, we don't cons- understand that's not violent, that's illegal. BDS, it's anti-Semitic and illegal. I mean, we know Palestinians get this message loud and clear. We're to do nothing. We're to surrender. We're to accept that we are going to be history's sacrificial lambs in order to make up for an anti-Semitic project born in Europe. And that's what we're resisting. I mean, we're fighting for our lives. It could have been anybody that now is occupying us and subjecting us to an apartheid regime. It happens to become complicated because of this discomfort, which I'm not surprised by. I teach undergraduate students at Rutgers University in the Africana Studies and Programming mm-hmm. Criminal Justice Department. Do you know how uncomfortable it is for these students to talk about racism? Right. It's like a private issue. They can't talk about it because racism in the United States is framed as a colorblind movement. And so in order to be anti-racist, you, can't, you have to pretend like race doesn't exist. So you don't even have the language for it. So imagine how uncomfortable people are talking about anti-Semitism. Imagine how uncomfortable they are talking about Palestinian rights that's been equated with this form. And and you don't, because you don't see the people, you don't see their faces. I was watching, just watching CNN's breaking news. There are 41 children dead in Gaza right now. There are people, children, babies being pulled out from under rubble. And CNN showed a message from Bibi Netanyahu explaining that they struck terrorists. And then moved to the correspondent in Tel Aviv talking about the trauma of the sirens going off. And that now the sirens are less than they were before. Why are we surprised that nobody has the language to talk about this? 
So, so much of the work that we do, right. And have been doing, and I think that we've been, we've been doing well is listen to us. Yeah. See us. We don't need to be alongside, you know, I'm in the Academy for so long in order for me to speak there. I had to have a Jewish counterpart. Yeah. To then verify. Yeah. Right. She's not lying. She's not lying. I wasn't lying in the first place. Right. Um, for your non-anti-Semitism. I'm not burdened by that. I'm not burdened by that because I have a commitment to all of our liberation. I yeah. have, and I, and you know, it's Muhammad al-Kurik said it so beautifully when he said they, they chant death to Arabs. We chant, we want freedom. That should tell you everything you mm-hmm. need to know. Right. They want us, they want to turn Gaza into a parking lot. They want to mark our homes in order to attack people in their homes because they are Palestinian. They want us to surrender that we don't belong to this land. And our message is, we belong. You can stay too. You just can't be our masters. Right. That's yeah. the extent of our demand, that you cannot be our masters. The extent of their demand is death and disappearance. Yeah, that's what I want to ask you that. Like, what is the Israeli project vis-a-vis Gaza and, and Palestine and the one, you know, everyone loves saying, oh, we're for the two-state solution, right? What is that? I mean, first of all, it's, I think everyone agrees that thanks to Zionists, that's not possible anyway. But what is the end game for that? Because a lot of people are rightly talking about a sea change moment where you have Human Rights Watch. And I know it's frustrating because people are like, yeah, we've been saying this for a while, but it's still, it's a historically significant thing, right? So you have Human Rights Watch and then Betselem, the Israeli human rights organization, both saying, yeah, actually, this is an apartheid state, right? Which Palestinians have been saying for decades. So there is a shift, but does it make a difference on the ground? What would make a difference on the ground is the actual movement of capitals. People are, we saw the protests that came out yesterday, how robust they were, how angry um, people are and how much love and support they have for Palestinians, because for them, this is simple. This is a people uprising in freedom, for freedom. That's a very, there's nothing complicated about that. It's a stateless people that's been bifurcated, ghettoized, put in an open air prison, subject to systematic war by the only nuclear power in the Middle East and the 11th most military power in the world, most significant military power in the world, backed by the United States. It's not really that complicated, right? right? Unless you don't want to be burdened with the responsibility, unless this is too much of a high price for you to pay. And so you'll watch Palestinians die and then write about it or lament about it later, commemorate them when it's no longer an issue. But the project has been clear. I mean, the project is to basically make sure that Palestinians cannot be sovereigns and cannot belong in their own land. And that's been done through a series of processes through, you know, in the Gaza Strip, it's war and siege within Israel. It's a for, it's using civil law in order to subjugate a people who are subject, still subject to an emergency regime law regime. In the in, in Jerusalem, it's administrative law. In the West Bank, it's occupation, it's martial law. It's the separation of Palestinians. And of course, in the diaspora, right, Palestinian refugees, it's the divide and conquer so that we're not a single nation. And instead, what they want to give us and what they made clear in the Oslo Accords, I mean, we can dissect this, I know we don't have time, but in the Oslo Accords, they made clear that, that the horizon for Palestinians is basically autonomy. Autonomy is a form of derivative sovereignty that we understand well in the United States, which is a settler colony. They're reservations. 
They want to place us in reservations or what would be the equivalent of black homelands, Bantustans, where we exercise some limited autonomy over our lives, but that we are subject to the sovereignty of the settler colony. That is the end game. That has been articulated over and over again. Netanyahu has said it. His government has said it. We have evidence that it's been being said for 73 years. The rejection of not wanting to deal with that comes with what I was mentioning earlier of just not wanting to bear the responsibility um, of this moment. And so Palestinians become, you know, humanity's sacrifice in order not to deal with this question. Yeah. So is it the idea is that they'll just be killed and or leave, go to Jordan, go to other countries? Is that the, the kind of the fantasy? Oh, yeah, they, they say go to Jordan, go to 22 other Arab countries right. or stay, but just stay as Arabs, right? Stay right. as like a minority population. And that's right. a form of genocide. Right. So when Native Americans in the United States, if you notice, Native Americans aren't a minority in the United States. They are an indigenous nation. They, enter, they have entered into treaties with the United States because they are a juridical people. Right. They're not a minority. The fight in Hawaii, for example, which is occupied territory amongst Hawaiians is between whether or not Hawaiians should be registered as indigenous peoples or they should be registered as an occupied territory to, to fight for their own state. Now, they, they're the Kanaka Maoli. They are indigenous. But once they enter into the Bureau of the Interior of the United States, they're going to be subject to the same kinds of territorial takings and subjugations. I mean, here I just want to emphasize Palestine is not unique. We are, we are, we are certainly not the only settler colony. What makes us unique is the fact that, one, we're fighting back. Mm-hmm. Two, that our settler counterpart happens to be framed as victim, a perennial victim. Right. Three, we are not in Algeria. There was a majority. It was an indigenous majority. And in South Africa, it was an indigenous majority. We are equal in numbers. And our population is also spread in diaspora. So there are significant distinctions, right? And so that's, it's not that we're special, right? It's just, these are certain circumstances that bring it to the fore. And we happen to be the U.S.'s self-proclaimed most significant ally in the Middle East because of a continuing interest in penetrating the Middle East for influence. I mean, the U.S. is in Yemen. The U.S. is still in Iraq. The U.S. is in Afghanistan. The U.S. is in Syria. The U.S. is funding counter-revolution in Egypt. This is part of that matrix. It's about U.S. hegemony. Before we leave, there's an, somebody in your is asking a question about white supremacist support for Palestinians. That's not true. Richard Spencer has made clear that he sees Israel as the future of, as a model for European sovereignty. So, the, so do the Hindutva movement in India, mm-hmm. Modi's followers, who are also supportive of, of Hindu um, nationalism. What they all have in common, right, is that they want to discriminate and exclude and be a chauvinist, a chauvinist nation, right, as a matter of right. We would we condemn this right. everywhere else. But white supremacists, Hindutvas, Jewish Zionists want to claim that mantle of exclusion and discrimination as a righteous matter. And so Richard Spencer is not with us. Right. At all. And, da- and David Duke. Israel is a model for European sovereignty. 
Yeah. And, and David Duke, I think some, they put that name in there too. I mean, he's a raging anti-Semite. I've never heard him express solidarity with Palestinians or Arabs, but if he ever did that, it would be totally disingenuous. And he might have in the past. And as a person who has been in movement for now over 20 years, we have rejected any association because our project is not a nationalist project. Right. Our project is a liberationist project. It's a liberation for all people. And that's not going to, it's not a, when Israel frames the equation and the future of Israel, it's a mutually exclusive project. Israel is if Palestinians are not. If Palestinians are, Israel is not. The reverse is not true. If Palestinians are, Jews can still be and they can still remain. They just can't remain as masters that the land only belongs to them. And, and so we've invited people to join our struggle. I do think that this is a bit of a turning point because yeah. we're shattering some taboos, a lot because of Palestinian sacrifice, but also a lot because of Israel's transgressions. They have had no holds barred. And, and I don't know anybody just watching as sympathetic, as much as you might hate violence, nobody can watch that and remain silent. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I know you're calling on scholars to sign up statements so I can link to that. And please come back on again. This was amazing. I'm so grateful that you came on. Thanks, Katie. It was wonderful to join you. I want to urge people that I've gotten a lot of calls of how to help. You can sign on to the petition, this petition for scholars on proxies. You can also sign on to the petition to release the bodies of Palestinians held in captivity after murder and in Israel at Tel Aviv University. You can join the BDS movement. You can donate to humanitarian organizations like the United Nations Relief Works Agency. You can donate to political organizations like the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Equal Rights. You can donate to Palestine Legal, which is a defense fund against trying to squash uh, Palestinian dissent in the United States. There is a litany of things that you can do. There is a general strike on May 18th. There are four demands of that general strike. Number three is basic. Make your support of Palestinian freedom clear and unequivocal. Thank you so much. Really, Nora, thank you so much. I'll link to all of the things that you mentioned. I just put a link to your Twitter and let's do another one. We can do like a fundraiser stream for one of these. Let's do it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you guys so much. I know I'm, it's a it's short a short stream for me tonight because I'm going to invite you all to go over to this Shama Sawan telethon that I'm participating in. And wow, those are amazing guests. I'm so grateful to them. I'm grateful for everyone who's watching here. Thank you, Brad, for all of that you do. And thank you, Phantom Espanta. So I'll see you guys soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show, for watching the Katie Helper Show. If you like this show, please subscribe and like and share. Please support the show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.